John Robbo Robertson is a true gentleman of the theatre. A showman of great charm, ability and vision, he has been at the forefront of commercial theatre since 1956, when he dropped a career in accountancy to enter the business of show. Just like the character of Leo Bloom in Mel Brooks's The Producers, the accountant turned producer. But Robbo's career trajectory saw him commence first as a stage manager on the Tivoli circuit, building his career in a number of roles and working with key production houses including Rudis Productions, J.C. Williamson's and Ken Brodziak. It was at the Adelaide Festival Trust where he truly evolved as one of the country's most successful impresarios, steering them with extraordinary list of hits, musicals that captured the audience's imaginations and made theatre going an event once more. As a director and executive producer with Cameron McIntosh's Australian company, he oversaw the arrival of the English juggernauts Cats, Les Miserables, The Phantom of the Opera and Miss Saigon. Musicals which changed the way in which the product was assembled, produced and marketed and presented. Known to everyone as Robbo, John has garnered a reputation as a much-loved and respected producer. He continues to be called upon for his sage advice, as a consultant and advisor. After all, he's been there, done that, many times over. The Australian performing arts would certainly be the poorer without the instinct, drive and passion of Robbo. I had the best time in conversation with John. Please enjoy. Uh, can I call you Robbo? Yes, of course. I've been calling you John all along. No, 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 of course not. That's good. So Absolutely fine. When was the first time somebody called you Robbo? Was it a school nickname or...? Mm, mm, well, that's hard to remember, but I'd say back right at the very beginning, really. Um, uh, yes, probably in, in when I first started in the theatre, I was always called Robbo rather than John. Uh, some people called me Johnny, which I hate. Really? Okay, that's good to know. So, Robbo it is. Yeah. Um, so, look, you've you've had a career of... Oh, countless opening nights which you've you've worked at or, or have attended. When you've worked an opening night, is there do you have a particular ritual or a superstition that you, you practice with with all of the shows that you've um, you put on? No, not really. Uh, I think I'm probably uh, just glad when the night's over <laughs> and that it's gone well. You know, I don't have I've never had a sort of ritual because sometimes. Uh, in the old days, it was very frantic, right up to the point of the audience coming in, uh, because you were running behind schedule and not enough rehearsal time and all that stuff. But uh, in recent years, that's much more uh, under control now. You don't have that that problem, and it's very well organised. And so, you know, do you like opening nights? I do, yes, because uh, it's good for the the company to get past that particular night, you know, which everyone's aiming for. But these days, of course, they have a lot of previews normally, which settles the show quite well, both from an actor's point of view and from the technical side. Um, and uh, therefore, opening night, even though it might be a bit nerve-wracking in a big evening, is liable to go much more smoothly than if you'd only had one run-through and then thrown the doors open, you know. It's, a, it's the birthing process, really, isn't it? Yes, it's it is. the, the yeah. day that yeah, it, it arrives. Is. Yeah. A lot of pressure. At what point do you know that a show is probably going to succeed and find its legs? Is that when the, the reviews come out? or There are two aspects, I'd say. Firstly, once you've got the, the show up and on, yes, the reviews are probably very important, but it's also the support of the public and what it's doing at the box office, which often... Uh, is quite opposite to what the reviews might say, or some of them. So it's a sort of two-pronged um, journey, so to speak, when you might get great reviews and nobody comes, or get terrible reviews and the audiences you can't loving it. stop them coming in the door. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the recipe is. You can only uh, judge your demographic and say, well, we think this will work, or uh, many a show's come along where the consensus is that this is not going to work out here and uh, and obviously they do something else. And that's probably still rule of thumb, I think. I guess as a producer, you... It's like gambling, really, isn't it? Is it, is it a gambling? Uh, yes. You've got to enjoy sort of that, the excitement of... Yes, it's sophisticated gambling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, as one uh, uh, guy at the Tivoli used to say years ago on opening night where we might have finished rehearsing at five o'clock in the afternoon and the first public performance was at eight o'clock that night. His signing off would be saying, well, you're in the lap of the gods now. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> so whatever happened after that. I, I always think of that um, that line in Annie Get Your Gun with Chief Sitting Bull. Yes, absolutely uh, spot on. <laughs> yeah, I think yes. he's asked to put money into yes. the Wild West show, I think, yes, and he yes. says he's got three rules. Yes. No eat red meat, um, something else, and... And no put money in show business. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oil, maybe, but not show, not show business. Yeah. Yes, that's often quoted and uh, probably quite a good rule of thumb in a way. Mm. <laughs> Where did you grow up, John? Are you a Sydney um, boy? You're living here now. No, I, no, I'm not. I was born in Camperdown in Western Victoria. My father was uh, an accountant, had an accountancy firm there, and uh, later became mayor for a, when it was turned into a town. He was mayor of Camperdown for many, many years. And uh, I went to school, the Camperdown State School there, for a while. And then they packed me off to Geelong Grammar when I was 11. And so that was in 1947 I started at Geelong Grammar and I finished there in 1954. So you were at boarding school? So boarding school. Did you enjoy yeah. the boarding life? Uh, it, in the junior school it took me a while to adapt to the discipline. It's a, a big thing to be removed from yes. your family at yes, 11. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think a lot of, I wasn't alone, I think a lot of us felt that. At 11 years old, you're suddenly wrenched away and put in this sort of institution. Uh, but basically speaking, uh, yes, it was a good experience. It was, a, you know, a great education and uh, uh, lots of uh, good things happening there. Did you uh, get involved with the school drama? I once attempted to be an actress in the role of Mistress Quickly <laughs> in Henry the Fourth, Part Two, or something like that. And that was a disaster, and I decided that after that uh, I wouldn't be doing any of that sort of thing again, but it had other people in it like Robin Ramsey and uh, Robin Cumming, uh, who both went on to have careers in the theatre as, 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 uh, actors, as well-known actors. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, my acting days were almost, came and went very quickly, but I was very involved with the uh, general film curriculum so to speak at the school where they would have movies of a Saturday night or educational movies and I used to you know run the equipment and all of that so I guess you could say that was the sort of beginning of it all even though I was slow to realize you know yeah but that, that I, responsibility of organization yeah, setting up yeah dealing with and operating it and, and uh, I had an uncle my mother's brother who was uh, at the time in the 50s and 60s, manager of various cinemas in Melbourne uh, and uh, newsreel theatres when they had them in those days. And he was the Metro Burke Street and the Metro Collins Street house manager and all that. So I got to see a lot of uh, movies uh, and uh, always sort of liked to see the, the lights go down and the curtains open and the lights fade and all that sort of thing. Um, so I guess that's sort of all combined. In the well, that's end. very seductive, isn't it? You know, yes. where sort of the, the lights going down and you're suddenly yeah. becoming a voyeur. And um, and also those, those cinemas were, were great architecture, great yes. temples, weren't they? Oh, they were. Yeah. And I, rem I remember going to the Regent Theatre in Melbourne, which burnt down in the latter stages of the war, uh, and the Hoyts rebuilt it. And it opened, I think, in 1946. Uh, to a movie called Home Stretch, with Cornell Wilde and someone else in it, and I, I begged my mother to take me, and she did. And they had a stage show with the orchestra coming up out of the bowels of the of the pit and uh, uh, show, a live show on stage for the first half. Then they had the movie, and uh, all of that going with a Wurlitzer organ and all of that sort of thing. I can remember it very clearly. <laughs> the film was terrible, but the rest of it was actually quite exciting. Uh, was there much of a um, musical influence in your, your childhood? Did, we, did, um, did you watch musicals at the the cinema? Yes, a lot. Yes, a lot. Yes, a lot. And uh, uh, my mother was musical. She used to play the piano, not altogether great, but uh, she managed to hold a tune. Uh, my father actually was in the the choir at the church, um, and I think relatives further back in my bigger family were sort of inclined musically so I've got a pretty good musical ear 
uh, and I was in the school choir as well at Geelong Grammar for quite some years. Uh, and so uh, that all, I think, sort of combined to help me when I sort of went over into this business of show. Uh, any siblings? Uh, one sister, yeah. who's six years older than me. Uh, she currently lives up in Rabina in Queensland. And uh, uh, she was uh, a registered nurse in her early years before she got married. And she had two children who were both up at the Gold Coast as well. So that's it. So, so Dad was an accountant. Was yeah. it expected that you would follow him into that family uh, business? Yes, I think it was sort of Russian roulette towards the end of my time at Geelong as to you've got to make up your mind what you're going to do. And I thought, oh, I might be a doctor or I might be a teacher and I might do... I was just completely, you know... That's a huge thing for a kid to work out what yes, they want to do. Yes, yeah. and, and to give an instant answer I thought was a bit, a bit of a stretch. In the end... Uh, when I left school, uh, I went into a firm under my father's influence in Geelong, based in Geelong, called Flack and Flack. Very <laughs> odd name. If you're drunk, you don't want to say that too quickly. <laughs> uh, and uh, we, together with two other people, used to tour the Western District auditing the books of various companies. And uh, following that, I went into national service at the in the Air Force for six months, and that time they had a 1950... So it was compulsory? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You could do three months in the Army or, or the Navy, or uh, I think, and six months in the Air Force. So I chose six months in the Air Force, which was quite good, actually. I quite enjoyed it, but it's a bit... You sort of say, what is this all about, you know? But after boarding school, I suppose there's probably not a lot of difference. Really, no, with well, the, we're, the regimentation. Know, the school cadets and all that sort of stuff, yeah. so it wasn't actually totally alien. And uh, uh, there were some good good friends in there. We, we had a good time, you know. But after that, I thought, I can't go back. I have to make a decision here as to what I'm going to do. So I announced that I was leaving Flack and Flack. Uh, not returning, and that I was going to move to Melbourne to see if I can get a job in the theatre. And how did your family respond to that? Were they encouraging of their son no. wanting a career in show business? Well, I think astonished might be the good word at first. They weren't sort of vehemently against it. I, mean, I think my father was very disappointed, but um, I think they thought, well, you know, you've got to find your own path here and see, see what you want to do and, and how it turns out. And I, I think of that um, that cruel joke of Mel Brooks's in the producers, you know, when Leo Bloom, the accountant, is is going to the toilet. The, the, his boss accuses him of going to the yes. toilet. He says, I'm not going to the toilet. Yes. I'm going to show business. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, of course, I had no idea really where I would where I would uh, end up because I thought, well, I've had six months auditing experience. I wasn't qualified for anything. So that's the only sort of uh, prop I had to to use. Um, and I met various organisations, people in the various organisations, including the uh, the uh, head finance guy at JC Williamson's, who was a man called Noel Blackburn. And Noel, in the interview, said to me, I can't understand why a boy of Geelong, with Geelong, Geelong grammar education would want to go into the theatre. And I said, I can't answer that. I said, I think it's just that... There was just a pool happening. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, Noel, I came to know very well in the end. He ended up being general manager at the Melbourne Theatre Company for many years and until he passed away just uh, recently, a couple of years ago. But, uh, yes, that was a, a sort of... I'm stuck here now because, you know, I, I have no qualifications and nothing to do with the finance of, of a big theatre company and nowhere to learn, so... Um, I was get, I was quite desperate. So so what was your first job? I at the Tivoli at the time, which was like August 1956. Uh, David Martin, who ran the Tivoli circuit, brought in this uh, group of singers and dancers, which was a Catherine Dunham's company, and she was an anthropologist as well as a choreographer and a dancer, and. This was the most unusual attraction at the Tivoli and I thought, I went to see it 
And I thought, this is absolutely amazing. I've never seen anything like it. Latin American rhythm is an old uh, cakewalk out of early America, all that sort of stuff strewn across. So it was a, da- a dance show? Yeah, dance, yeah. dance show. Uh, singers, dancers, musicians, about 35 in the company. And they were brought in, obviously, at great expense, and they'd had a big success in England and America. Uh, and so I wrote a letter to her saying, you wouldn't happen to have a job as a, uh, to answer your fan letters or sort of secretarial work, I can type quite well, and I'm interested in show business. So a week or 10 days later, I get a, a, a letter saying, please come to the Tivoli stage door. And so I had an interview with she, Catherine Dunham, and a lady called Marjorie Scott, who was her sort of private secretary, but also sort of like tour manager as yep. well. And uh, they said, oh, we can give you something here. You know, it'll be sort of six days a week, but be answering fan mail and being a general production assistant. And I thought, wow, that's all right. So there I was inside the door. Uh, And the long and short of it was her American stage manager, I think, had a row with her and resigned and shot off. And she had to, by contract, provide somebody else. So in the... While this was being sort of organised, her husband, John Pratt, who was the uh, designer, the scenic designer, costume designer of the show, took me under his wing and showed me around the stage and gave me various jobs to do. So in the end, I was being taught by him uh, until such time as the Tivoli stage manager from here, from Sydney, came down, a man called uh, Durham Marcel, and he learnt the show before this other guy disappeared so he could then take the show on in, into Sydney. And so I was there with him, just standing behind as a sort of intern, more than anything else. And the show then moved to Sydney at the Tivoli here. And eventually, this guy, who had to go on to the next Tivoli show, because we were only there for you know six or, or so weeks, um, taught me the stage, management's, stage manager's job, and I virtually took it over. So this is you're serving an apprenticeship where you're learning very much on the job. Yes. And you're going into it with no no previous experience, experience whatsoever. And I was 20. So it was very much a happy accident, wasn't it? It was, yes, yeah, a yeah. fortuitous in yeah. actual fact. And she was a remarkable woman, uh, born in, in out in, in Illinois, uh, just out of Chicago, uh, in in, uh, in Joliet, Illinois. But a very talented lady, but a very hard taskmaster wanted everything to be perfect and during the show sometimes I get a uh, one of the dancers had come off or someone to give me a note from her she's on stage doing saying such such and such not working or that should be on or lighting and all that sort of stuff she was very very much the aware like, of an actor manager so yes yeah, exactly yeah. Of what was going on so I learned a lot in that period but we look you know I mean it was here at the Sydney Tivoli when we did three seasons here in between going to Brisbane and Adelaide and New Zealand. And the last time we were here, our next stop was Asia. And my parents were came up, having said, yes, you can go to Asia, don't worry, we'll be, I'm sure. And so that last performance, Catherine Dunham dragged me on stage. I wasn't aware that this was going to happen. And my mum and dad were in the audience and... She said uh, to the audience, generally, I want to introduce this young man who's about to turn 21 and he's become our stage manager and we all love him and the the company are behind it going like that. And she said, I want to assure his mother and father who are in the audience tonight that we will look after him and return him safely to Australia at the end of the tour. Brilliant. Which was great. Did you stay in touch with her when she went back to America? Uh, We did Asia, which was a really tough tour. Yeah. I mean, in theatres that were not theatres and all of that. And it did sort of Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Manila, Hong Kong. And then for the US Army, we did Korea, uh, South Korea. Uh, The war had just finished and it was horrific. Uh, Then on into Tokyo and places like that. At the end of the tour, they all went back to America and a group of us who had come out of Australia and New Zealand to join her came back here. And that's when I went back to the Tivoli, Melbourne. What happened to Catherine Dunham? She went on uh, uh, to do more work on her anthropological... Is that the right word? Yeah. Uh, 
uh, side and she was uh, basically domicile in Haiti. She had an estate down there and of course that's very turbulent sort of uh, political situation there. Uh, but she had also a school in Chicago, uh, the Dunham School of Dance or whatever, which ran for quite a few years. And she passed away in her mid-90s, she was, wow. about probably about uh, six years ago, six wow. or seven years ago. Uh, but she was a remarkable woman, yeah. a remarkable woman. Tell me about the, uh, the Tivoli circuit. <laughs> How did that work? So there were Tivoli theatres all around Australia? Or? Um, well, the, the two main Tivolis were one in Melbourne and one here, of course, that have had various histories as, uh, in other, uh, under other names before actually being combined into the Tivoli, which David Martin was running when I came back to Australia. The only other Tivoli was the original uh, Tivoli in Adelaide, uh, which, of course, is now just a shell because they've demolished everything within the walls and are rebuilding it into a new in a new theater but uh, uh, there were no other Tivoli theaters that, but that when they went on tour they used to hire other venues from Williamson's or Edgeley's in Perth for instance his Majesty's and uh, uh, in New Zealand when they used to tour they used to tour the carriage circuit which was a big cinema circuit with a couple of uh, so-called theatres that could take live shows, which were pretty, pretty dicey. So, what were the live shows? The the, the Tivoli was it like vaudeville? Uh, yeah, variety. Variety. Yeah, variety yeah. review. Right. Okay. So yeah, the first thing I did was a was a was a review in Melbourne, called "Pardon My French," which was very much, uh, you know, uh, glitz and glamour and dancing girls and showgirls and and variety acts and a comedian who was Johnny Lockwood. Yeah, that one, um, and we used to change the show every eight weeks. So four weeks in, you'd be rehearsing a new show, uh, and Saturday night the old show would close, and the Wednesday matinee you'd have your first audience of the new one. It was hard work. Well, as a, a newly um, appointed stage manager, what what was the most difficult aspect of that job that that you've constantly found a challenge? I think having only been at the when I first got in there to the Tivoli I was 20 22 roughly and uh, being in charge of a great group of adult performers who'd come from around the world uh, plus the locals of the showgirls and the ballet girls and the boys and all that for, you know from a disciplinary point of view is very challenging because as a stage manager, you are the captain of the ship, aren't yes, you? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, sort of yeah ensuring everything runs along, time, yeah. representing the producers. Yes, um, and all through your career, I suppose, there's been the odd, not the odd. I suppose there's been a few dicey personalities that you've had to deal with. And oh yes, you know, there's people. Who've... And age and wisdom just makes it easier to deal with it. Um, yes, probably. But uh, I think when you're very young, you tend to think that speaking loudly might solve the problem, whereas in actual fact, you need reason and patience and all that which I learned very quickly I think um, and uh, uh, yes there are all sorts of personalities that you know do all sorts of terrible things <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of producers have started their careers as stage managers mm -hmm. what is it about is, is that a natural progression that for a stage manager to go to or well, why do you think that is I think the first thing about it is that it gives you an opportunity if you've got a desire to expand your work in the in the entertainment industry to learn very much as to how the how the theater and the stage functions and what its what its uh, requirements are what you need to do how you need to muster the crew all that sort of stuff and it's um, in those years it was very primitive in terms of its electronics and not like now at all where you know your most of your instructions were over a microphone to loudspeakers around the stage or into the dressing rooms but all you know organizing rehearsal schedules all that sort of stuff was was all part of the job and I think once you absorb all that then nobody then can say from the front office you don't know what you're talking about because you've actually been and done it 
Yes, and, you've got and, a complete understanding yeah, of all the, yes, uh, exactly. the facets. Yeah. And a lot of people in the industry come up through the various stage departments and go into either stage management or company management and eventually, you know, into producing. So we eventually saw the demise of the Tivoli yes. circuit. What, was that uh, how did we, was that TV that brought about that finish? The general consensus is it was the advent of television, which was I think nineteen fifty six. Six, yes, yeah. Uh, was the beginning of the end, and I think both theatres sort of struggled on, but audiences tended to stay away because they could, you know, see in Melbourne tonight or whatever on the box and. No point in going to a, a theatre to pay more money when you can get it for free at home. The uh, Yes, the, the theatres, I think the Tivoli's particularly, had a lot of dark times towards the end and were were uh, gradually just sort of... I think the Tivoli in Melbourne actually caught fire and burnt down. That's now a, an office block, you know. But I guess um, theatres have always struggled. Uh, there's been good times or bad times, depending oh, yes. on the technology that has evolved, whether it be cinemas or television or, yeah. or live streaming at home. Yes, it's sort exactly. of it's been yeah. a constant um, fight for the audience, yes, hasn't it? Yeah. Yes. yes, and I think you know the Tivoli found that, and and also, I guess uh, the expense of producing these shows, which were easier to see on television uh, than they were to actually gear up and get on stage, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think it wasn't only Australia, it happened around the world where the variety circuits in England and particularly America and England gradually died out and, and therefore uh, there are not many people you could draw on in the end. Uh, and there's a whole set of circumstances just sort of coming together, I think, at that time. You've worked with a, a few production companies, houses. Um, I want to ask about a few of them. Rudis Productions. Yes. That was, was Tybold Rudis. Tybold. sorry. Tybold. Tybold. Yeah. Uh, was he Pavarotti's manager? Did I, yes, I that? In, in the latter stage of his life, yes, right. he was. I first worked for him in, I think, 1959 through to 1964. Um, he was, in a way, the last great white hope for the Tivoli because he'd done a deal with them to put in these shows in the late 50s um, which would have uh, hopefully uh, saved them and, and, and the deal would have gone on he would have produced more. But he originally came to Australia with his as an act uh, for the Tivoli and then the Hungarian Revolution blew up Budapest and God knows the country was chaotic so they decided to stay here. And they opened an acrobatic school down in Regent, Little Regent Street in Sydney. And uh, then he branched out into producing. And uh, yes, he had quite a bit of success. And he only really did, that I know of, four shows here. But in latter life, he moved to America and he was involved in major shows in Atlantic City in the casinos and in the Caribbean and in Las Vegas eventually. But then Pavarotti came along and Tibor had always been interested and had a keen interest in opera uh, dating back for years and years and I think once Pavarotti became sort of so well known he had this idea that he could bring him to a wider audience rather than just someone singing in an opera house and that's how this all started and it became a huge, uh, huge world tour, world uh, undertaking, uh, a great big organisation and made a fortune. I guess he was the first of those big yes. opera stars to go off on a yeah. concert tour. Yeah. I mean, you see Andre yes. Bocelli now. Yes, and, exactly. Um, Brin well, Turfle. then after Pavarotti alone came the three tenors, of course, all right, yes, probably the most famous of all of that in the, in their touring, uh, touring the world. And uh, uh, yeah, Tibor then was living in America in... Uh, Monterey at the time, and uh, uh, it was a very successful uh, tour. And it came, Pavarotti came here. He was the first artist to play the new indoor stadium at Olympic Park. Right before the Olympics, just they just finished it off, and it was a sort of we'll have him in as the first attraction. Chris in the stage. Yeah. Yes, well, it. it a difficult venue to put, you know, even though you're sort of slightly amplified, it's yeah. 
difficult venue to work sound-wise and, yeah. you know, relay and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, you then joined the firm yes, J.C. After that, Williamson's I, yes, I went into stage director. Williamson's in 1964 uh, and the first show I did was a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum, which uh, toured uh, Melbourne, Sydney and uh, Adelaide. And that was one of the shows uh, that had four imports from overseas to play the leading roles. Um, and, of course, the contemporary scene today is one of uh, a bit bit of uh, uh, thing going on there now. But in those days, that was the sort of philosophy of Williamson's and these people have probably never been never been heard of or were understudies or, or leading the road company touring America and of course they weren't name values here, they're just that they're coming from America to play these roles. Until we started to create our own stars like Tony Lamond and yes. Nancy Hayes. Yes, well then... Jill Perriman. Yes, and uh, uh, Tony in the pyjama game was first and then there was Jill and Funny Girl and finally Nancy in, in uh, Sweet Charity. So yeah. you you were working as stage director. What did that entail? Was that was that like being resident director? You were ensuring oh, so, that the you know, what's in a title, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, same job, but uh, there are uh, two very good uh, uh, deputy stage managers usually with that group, and uh, I used to uh, in that put the uh, rehearse the understudies and all that sort of thing, and generally keep an eye on the production from the front. What so we talk about like a quasi. Uh, resident director type thing, yeah, yeah. which they never heard of in those years, but it it was a bit like that at the time. So, what about the the creative roles at that time? You know, we're, we're uh, creating local talent mm-hmm. with, with Lamond and Hayes and Perryman, but but what about uh, directors and musical directors and designers? Are, are we we getting Australians on board there, or are they coming with no, the show not from really. overseas? At that time, with Williamson's, it was always somebody from basically from overseas to direct it. And uh, in that period of Funny Girl and uh, Sweet Charity and and uh, um, Googie's Beekman Place, I think, was directed by Fred Hebert, and uh, who was, you know, from New York. Lovely, lovely man. Very, very, very good at his job. Uh, but yes, when I'm looking right down here, I see, you know, on my little list, most of them all had overseas, overseas directors. But when overseas, you could say George Carden and Freddie Carpenter were two Australian dancers turned uh, choreographers turned directors who worked a lot in in England, and they came back to do uh, a few shows for for back their knowledge and experience. Yes, exactly. And, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. You eventually be promoted to executive production director. That was after the Adelaide Festival of Arts. Right. Uh, okay. When, All right. well, when we'll Michael get, we'll, Edgeley took over. We'll get back and talk yeah. to about in a minute then. Um, I have to say, you know, you, when you're at Williamson's, you're responsible also for shows like Pippin. Yes. Um, which I think it was probably, you know, starring John Farnham. Now, was, I think that's in, genius, yeah. genius casting. Yeah, it was Ken Brodziak cast that. All yeah. oh, right, two, uh, two pop stars at the yes. time, putting yeah. them into a musical and yeah. garnering a, a bigger audience. Yes. Um and it had uh, Ronnie Arnold was in it, of course. Who came up with West Side Story, didn't he? Yeah, he did, yes, yes. Uh, the original West Side Story, yes. And I, I'm not sure who directed Pippin, but I think it was Sammy Bays, who used to do a lot of work for Brodziak. Tell me about Ken Brodziak, because he, he's another producer of... Yes, he, he was... Uh, Ken uh, lived in Melbourne, of course, and was really, really smart in terms of his choices of of uh, productions or concerts he did concerts as well as musicals and uh things like godspell that you'd you'd sort of look twice about maybe and he thought no this is going to work and the rod was in was rod dunbar yeah was was in in uh, godspell but ken ken was very very astute at, at picking his shows and then controlling them when they were being produced. Not everyone was a winner, but uh, he he felt that, you know, he had the right touch. Um, How were these companies finding product? Are they travelling to New York and London regularly to see? Yes, to but see? they also had permanent agents living in New York and 
and in London. Who could advise whether a yeah. show could yeah, possibly Yeah, well, if the season's been... getting going, they would go and see everything and say, look, this is coming up, I think you ought to be interested in this or that or whatever. Uh, and uh, there was a... Williamson's had an office in New York as well as in London, uh, and Ken had representation in both cities as well. So their finger would be on the pulse as to what was coming up. Probably not as because of distance and time and all that sort of thing, not as not as fast as it is today with the information that's coming back because of, you know, communications and social media and all that sort of stuff. But they, yes, for many years they've always had an office in, in New York and indeed in London. I'm fascinated by a woman called Betty Pounder. Yes. Who was worked for Williamson's yes. chiefly, didn't she? Well, she was a dancer uh, primarily in her early life. Of the Williamson shows, mm-hmm. yeah. And she... Uh, eventually became their uh, casting director and artistic director um, and particularly in the years where uh, Tony and Tony Lamond and uh, Jill and Nancy were were uh, coming up through the ranks through Fair Lady and all that sort of stuff you know um, but she would go to New York or London see yes. the show yeah. and then come back and yes. and stage it yes she she had a brilliant mind uh, and she could notate these shows in her own way, uh, but it wouldn't just be the choreography, it would be basically the direction. Uh, but if some, a director was coming out from New York to do it, of course, they would have all the information too. And this Fred Hebert was actually uh, a production stage manager of these shows, and so he knew intimately uh, what the blocking was and all of that. In addition to that was also a whole lot of um, work that she'd need to do about the designs and the props because in those years, you know, the, the control of, uh, the creative control of a designer's work is, was nowhere near as strict as it is today. Yep. And uh, you need today to do the deals with every one on the creative team to get their work to pull it all together. In those years, she would maybe take photographs, but also uh, know enough about the props and things like that. Uh, so it would all be duplicated. But what the royalty arrangement was yes. between the uh, head of JCW here and the, uh, uh, the owners of the of the of the production in America, uh, I still don't know, but I suspect it was very loose. Well, again, because communication wasn't as a medium, no, exactly. I suppose. You, we were a long way yeah, away. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes, I, I mean, I know that uh, Times Pounder would be welcomed in New York, in the theatres there, but other times she might have found it a bit difficult to be asking questions of creative people or, or making notes or taking information down about things that they felt was their work and it was not necessarily going, they're not necessarily going to earn much out here. Maybe it was an encompassing royalty which was split between the the authors of the piece and the creative might have got a bit out of that. Yes, certainly. A a time well before intellectual property rights and things, which certainly... Before all of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People... Yes, you couldn't do it these days. People own their direction. They own their design. They own their... Yeah, yeah. Um, So I guess you're starting to develop uh, close relationships with people all around Australia in the various states, the, the theatre owners, mm-hmm. the, the, the marketing people, the, the people who book shows, um, yeah. t- ticketing. Of, oh, particularly uh, for Williamson's, which was, and before, I think it was, yes, it was when I, I was actually uh, doing I Do, I Do with Jill Perryman. And Stephen Douglas. Stephen Douglas, that's right. And it opened here at the Theatre Royal. And I think after that, I think I left and went to Adelaide Festival Centre, the Adelaide Festival of Arts actually, yes it was. That was a complete departure from JC Williamson's because it was the 1970 festival was coming up which Robert Helpman was the artistic director of and of course there were people coming from all over the world to perform there for two weeks or three weeks or something and that was a huge like organisational job where the city didn't have too many decent venues, the festival centre wasn't there, 
And so we had to make do in a lot of places which were really crummy. <laughs> you know? Before we move yeah. into Adelaide, can I just ask, what brought about the demise of J.C. Williamson's? Because they were a significant contributor to culture in this country yes. for well, many years. Yes, they were. Uh, nearly 100 years when you look back uh, with various people running the company. And they were had a concert division as well as a, a theatre division that that ran the theatres. And um, and I was there sort of at the end in the 70s when it all sort of went pear-shaped. Um, and the problem was, I think, that after Sir Frank died... Uh, Sir Frank Tate. Yes, Sir yep. Frank Tate died just after the Sutherland Opera opened in Melbourne. And eventually John McCallum took over the managing directorship, which was sadly only for a short time because of, I guess, differences of, of uh, where the company should be heading and what they should be doing. The other difficulty that Williamson's had was that they had all these theatres where they were paying the, the daily operating man- and maintenance costs and staff costs, and they had little or sometimes very, very poor choices of product to bring in and stage, that some of the theatres would be empty, that they'd be carrying those costs, uh, and eventually it just it ran out of time and the parent company said, we virtually can't do this anymore. Right. We're closing up shop and selling the theatres. And that's eventually what, what happened, try as they might. Yeah. You know? All good things come to an end. Well, yes, and I suppose they had a huge monopoly, Williamson's, in their time. And, uh, you know, if you wanted to, and that was my ambition, the one company I wanted to work for was J.C. Williamson's because they were at the, the peak of their success, etc. you know. But, yes, various problems, being money and taxes and uh, having to be commercial and carrying a huge staff. I mean, the Melbourne... Uh, headquarters, apart from the two theatres, had a huge production facility at the back there where you'd never have to go anywhere to get anything. It was all built and manufactured and the costumes, all that, all the scenery, all the props, the cloths were painted in the paint frame and so virtually once that's done you could just get it onto the stage and away you go. But I mean that was so expensive to keep going that they eventually closed that down and then uh, the theatres around the country were sold. And then the Adelaide Festival Centre Trust becomes the new big centre of uh, yes. theatre making. Yes, after the the end of Williamson's, um, I had a period in the film industry after that. Oh, uh, do tell. Uh, do tell. What films would it? Two that'll be forgettable. <laughs> Straight to video? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not sure. Straight to television. No, the, the one thing I did do was um, in early 77 was a movie by, which Peter Weir was the director right. called The Last Wave, Yes, which uh, starred Richard Chamberlain and Olivia Hamnett. And uh, it was made under the banner of the South Australian Film Corporation. And it was shot both in South Australia and here in Sydney, mostly location stuff. And it was like February through to April or May. It was quite a long shoot, actually, and very difficult because most of it was always in water, where you were underwater doing things. But uh, I found that a very brand new experience because I'd never done any film work. And uh, uh, the producers who I knew from the theatre had said, oh, you won't have a problem with this. You know, you've stage managed everything in your life. You're bound to be able to handle this. Well, it was a huge adjustment because you've, waste so much, not waste, but you have to wait for so long. It's a lot of waiting around, yeah. uh, For setups to be done and all sort of before you can actually shoot anything. um, But uh, I did enjoy it. It was really great stuff. And then I did two telly movies after that, which were uh, one with the same crew, which was really great. Some of Russell Boyd and uh, people like that, John Seal, you know, uh, who went on to become Hollywood royalty in terms of cinematographers. Was that an experience you enjoyed, or you? Were oh just, yes, I did. It was did, hard yeah. work. My yeah. God, you know, when you 
when you eat six days a week and the seventh day you're dead. <laughs> you know, and it was very tough going, but I did enjoy it. Yeah. The most remarkable experience. But then you lured back to the theatre. Yeah, uh, they they were they had opened the centre by then, and uh, uh, at the time someone said to me, "Why did you leave?" I said, "Well, nobody made me an offer." I said I'd already agreed to go back to Williamson Edgeley. Yeah. Uh, in '72, after the '72 festival, and uh, um, my friend Lenamadio, who was the director of the Department for the Arts at the time, uh, said to me. Why are you going? Why, why, why are you leaving? And I said, well, nobody has talked to me about any form of a, of a job. And I said, you know, I know it opens in a year, and that was the problem. It didn't open till October 73, the centre, and this was early 72, so, you know, I needed to be occupied doing things. So tell me, who, who were these three, Earl, Birdie and Robbo? Uh, Kevin Earl was the general manager of the Festival Centre. Yeah. Birdie was Tony Fruin, who was the marketing and publicity director, and I went to school with him. Oh, okay. Yeah, but he was also with the opera before he came to the Adelaide Festival Centre in the opera in its early days, Elizabethan opera and all that. Wonderful market market man, had a great vision. And Kevin Earle, with Anthony Steele, was running the centre. At that time, Anthony was the sort of artistic director and a festival director as well. And Kevin was general manager. But the three of you oversee this huge juggernaut which launches into Australia big musicals like Annie and Evita. Not Annie. Annie was Ken Brodziak's production, but Annie came into the Festival Centre. Did it? Okay, yeah. sorry about that. Yeah. But Evita was the was the was the thing. That really put you on the map. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to remember at the time that the whole Williamson's operation had shut down. So there were no no competition? No, well, not competition. There was no major scenic workshop or building, uh, show building facility. We never had the painting ability. That was taken off by two of the Williamson guys forming their own company in Melbourne. But the actual facility to be building shows was non-existent. And so when, and it was Kevin Earle who got the rights from Andrew and Tim and David Land to do Evita, that then because of the requirements of that show, we had to get a, a workshop going to do all the steel work and all and that was the beginning of the Adelaide Festival Centre Trust workshops, which still exist today, uh, out at Mile End, north of Adelaide, not Mile End, uh, Dry Creek, north of Adelaide. And uh, yeah, they're still going from strength to strength, I think. And but impressively, you were, you were also championing Australian musicals with Ned Kelly. Well, yes, Ned Kelly preceded Evita, um, yeah. and I think it cost us $350,000 to put Ned Kelly on. It was a difficult piece because it probably got on but it needed more rehearsal. Reg's uh, concept of it was terrific and the music was terrific as well but it, it was in the days also before radio mics so all of the singers had hand mics with leads. You can imagine wow. what that was like. But Geraldine was in it. Yes, she yes, it's Mark Kelly. Yeah. And uh, it had a great cast, actually, but it got savaged by the local advertiser critic. Right. And, you know, what are they doing spending government money on this piece? We had other outside investors and sponsors and all that as well. But it lost, it lost, it came to Sydney, but it lost considerable amount of money but so that was our probably first and last effort at doing a major Australian musical although there were other projects we were involved in in the time in Adelaide some one with uh, Jim Sharman at, at the State Theatre Company which never came to fruition there'd been a lot of that but uh, risky and Adelaide uh, they wouldn't uh, the board wouldn't uh, go down that track again but once we got Evita going and it was a pretty surefire success and part of the thing was that there was a tradition even before I joined that the January period was a dead period in Adelaide the playhouse where the State Theatre Company uh, was in residence used to go dark and the Festival Theatre had nothing in it either so it's the old story of the landlord having to find attractions and and uh, funding it themselves so we, we ended up having like uh, the the Ray Cooney 
farces and that sort of stuff in the playhouse for four or five weeks and then a, a musical in the in the uh, festival theatre and it went on to things like Vita and um, uh, Guys and Dolls um, yeah Me and My Girl me, was no not Me and My no, Girl that, was uh, that came into Adelaide but it right. wasn't our that yep. was Ken's as well I think Ken was yeah Am I correct in assuming that, that revenue-wise, Avita was one of the first shows to attract a big commercial sponsorship from Benson and Hedges? Yes, it was about a quarter of a million dollars, if I'm if I got my yes. figures correct. And it was probably yes, and that was you would never get that now, being a, a quarter of a million. And, yeah. Uh, oh yes, uh, but 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 now it's very commonplace for corporations to yes, to sponsor it is uh, big music. Maybe I'm not sure, you know, these days what they do get out of it, but. It was, you know, pretty, uh, pretty good achievement there. And Kevin Earl got all that in place. Yes, most of the, it was Edgeleys were in it, and uh, I can't remember who else was the co-producer of it with us, Avita. But it did sensational business at the time, and uh, did uh, Adelaide, Perth. We played in in the old entertainment centre, which is not there anymore. And it's a 10,000-seat arena venue with a stage on it, with the facilities and all that. But that show in there, we curtained off it down to like 3,000 or something, I think. Yeah. But it was hideous. You know, it's not... Can't put a show like that in that sort of uh, uh, venue. And But it was no, there was no choice. We had nowhere else to go. Well, I guess that's one of your challenges as a producer, is finding the right venue well, yes. for your show. Yeah. And that can make or break. Yes, Yes, exactly. So in 1986, you joined Cameron McIntosh as a director. Uh, yeah, I was still living in Adelaide and working out of Adelaide and the association uh, with Cameron came earlier than that when we did his production of Oklahoma in Adelaide, which was uh, uh, starred John Dietrich and was really the Palace Theatre London production of Cameron's transferred out here. And I think the the tipping point for that was that Cameron, I think, saw what Adelaide was capable of doing with Evita and felt very comfortable in working with that team to put Oklahoma into the Adelaide Festival Theatre and then subsequently tour it, of course. He, at that time, was just putting his Australian company together and the plan was that they would do Cats first and um, Adelaide would be the sort of line producer of it uh, with other investors, but the main investor was from New Zealand. Um, and that sort of started the ball rolling, which had opened here at the Royal, of course, in July, July 85. Yep. Might have canned it You're pointing to a... Uh, is that an opening night present? It was. From Tiffany's, would you believe? A Tiffany decanter. I'm telling you, it was July... Um, 27th of July, 1985. Opening night of Cats. Yes. Yeah. And, and we, there was a bomb scare, wasn't there? There certainly was. Yeah. We had to hustle the Prime Minister, who was Hawk, out across the road to our office and evacuate the audience and everything. But, uh, look, I, st- I stayed attached to the Adelaide Festival Centre to, under their sort of uh, requirements and their banner. Uh, but in the end, I finally sort of, I think, went with uh, with them until Katz was uh, taken over by the Macintosh office here and then toured nationally and in, into New Zealand, you know. But at the same time, Adelaide was still building and organising all the productions that Cameron brought out here. Of course, that, Cats was only the beginning. We yeah. had Phantom, Les Mis. Les was, was immediately after. Uh, and Les Mis, that was extraordinary, sort of, to, to assemble that, that, that coup of casting with, you know, Warlow, Quast, mm-hmm. Pryor, Byrne. Mm-hmm. It's just phenomenal. Yes. You know, many of them at the beginnings of their career. No, exactly. And, and uh, I think that, you know, that's... One of the greatest things that Cameron has in terms of achievement out here is recognising uh, very talented people and assembling them into shows that are, that they're right for, you know, because it was flawless. That casting was flawless, and and it was you know obviously Trevor Nunn 
had a hand in it as well. But uh, basically, Cameron's has always placed great um, emphasis on getting the casting right. And was Miss Saigon responsible for the refurbishment of the, the Capitol Theatre? Have we got yes. Cameron and Miss Saigon to thank <coughs> for that? Yes, in part. Uh, obviously, once the region was demolished, or you know that started and the capital was going to be refurbished, uh, and it was refurbished to the specifications for Saigon on the stage particularly, which had to be extended by 30 feet into Hay Street at the back. Um, to give it the depth. And that deal, I think, knowing that Saigon would be there for probably a year or more, was one of the one of the aspects of the council committing uh, Epo Gardens to do the restoration. Yeah, and, and then uh, the boxes that are in the capital on the side of the circle there were added in the period after West Side Story, which there was Barishnikov doing a dance piece, The White Project or something like that. And then West Side Story went in there, Ian Judge's production. Yes. And then it was dark for some time while those boxes were put in. And then Saigon went in and played there from just over a year it played anyway until November 96. Now, to the... Um uninitiated that might be listening can you can you define for me the difference between a producer an associate producer and an executive producer what are those different roles well the producer is 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 the the top of the food chain for what of an analogy an associate producer may have uh, some sort of investment in the show but also uh, duties in terms of actually getting it on and the executive producer is quite often uh, an employee of the management or the producer that's putting it on to actually pull all the elements together. Did you do a lot of travel in your time as a producer to, to see what was happening in New York and oh, in yeah, London? Yeah, there were a lot of, a lot of trips. No, not that it was my choice to make at all. I mean, when I was with Cameron, I used to, you know, get to New York and London regularly to see things but uh, in the end I wasn't producing it I was the executive producer so if he decided we do this this is how this happened you know with Martin McCallum and all yep. that and that's and James they, and that's how all that occurred. Um, was there a show that you tried to secure for Australian audiences that you you just couldn't get? No not that I can remember but I do Going back a long way, you remember Sound of Music, which was such a hit with Mary Martin, uh, that there was some conjecture over over whether it would come here. And eventually, I think uh, Williamson's passed on it because they thought it might offend the Catholics, you know, whereas Garnet Carroll snapped it up and the rest was history. Big hit. Uh, what is it about shows like Les Mis and Phantom and Cats, and, and we're seeing it now with Dear Evan Hansen and Hamilton, that draw extraordinary demand from the public? Uh, is it because they're good or is it the genius of the marketing machine? Uh, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, if you've got a product that isn't up to the mark, then no amount of marketing or whatever will will uh, uh, make it work, you know. Um, I think a great deal, you might recall, um, in the days, in the early days of My Fair Lady, the original, um, the anticipation of it coming here was enormous. You couldn't buy the LP; it was embargoed, yada yada, until you know they'd got it all organised and they released it at a certain time, and people were getting pirated copies from America, all that sort of stuff. You know, so the anticipation of it was really great. These days, uh, particularly with something like Cats. Uh, Les Mis to a lesser extent but certainly Phantom of the Opera uh, the anticipation of that coming out here was enormous absolutely enormous and you know I mean it, in the end with all the elements working it played two and a half years at the Princess Theatre in Melbourne with not one single unsold seat yeah that's extraordinary it absolutely sold out across the board uh, and then it did Three years here in Sydney at the Royal, you know. Uh, 
and not all the time it wasn't necessarily sold out here but it did extremely good business so that sort of word of mouth is well worth it because the public are sort of primed into it so your marketing then follows on um, I think the same effect would be eventually with Hamilton yes and it's it's odd I was at a concert of Leia Salongas at the Opera House that was a great concert yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was with a friend of mine who also was in the business work for Global Creatures for a while and uh, Leia said I'm going to sing a song written by Lin-Manuel Miranda and the people started applauding and I thought that's interesting and then she said this is called Burn I think from Hamilton and they went bananas and I said to Wayne next to me I said how come people know about that uh, you know that song and this show there's been no real public but it's obviously social media social it's obviously media. people paying attention to what's going on on Broadway or in the West End uh, and so I think it's got, there's an un undercurrent of interest here, which is yet to materialise, but the word is out there. And uh, uh, these days, that's really worth a lot, I think. And, and your, any subject can be musicalised. Well, uh, yes. And, and um, capture the audience's <coughs> imagination, whether it be the French Revolution yes. or the, the guy who invented the treasury system yes. in America. Well, of course, Les Mis was a huge risk. Nobody knew, you know, how it was going to going to go and there's that you know it's now theatrical history of what happened that you know six weeks after it opened at the Barbican I think Cameron had to commit to it moving but then uh, was unsure because the business had been unable to predict and he rang the box office at the Barbican and couldn't get onto it this is just after it opened uh, and finally spoke to somebody on another line and the guy said I, I can't tell you now, he said, we've been absolutely swamped with requests for tickets and it's not going to stop. He said, it's it's a sort of run now. And so that was the trigger that sort of said to Cameron, OK, well, I think I've got something that might work here and I'll move it to the palace. And now... Still going somewhere in the world. Well, it's the Queen's in, New, in London and uh, it's uh, going to move from the Queens while they refurbish, but it'll still be playing London somewhere. Been so turned into a film? It was turned into a film. Yeah. Uh, it's now, I see you advertise, come along to see Les Mis and sing along. Oh, sing along, yes. I mean, see I can't well. imagine anything worse. <laughs> do you have not a favourite... quite the sound of music. <laughs> no, no, not quite, not quite. Uh, do you have a favourite show? Um, Either one you worked on or just a show that you enjoy seeing? Well, I suppose, uh, looking back over the lot, one of the first that I didn't know as stage manager of it was Man of La Mancha, which was the original version from Broadway, directed by the production stage manager out here. But it had Suzanne Steele in it and Charles West from England was, was Don Quixote. Bobby Healy was Sancho. Terry McDermott was in it. It was a great cast, actually. Norman, yeah. And that was revolutionary to the point where I don't think the publicists knew how to sell it at all. But it got an audience of its own. And I think Williamson's would have done something like, apart from the original, done three other productions subsequent to that to tour it whenever they had dates available. I think, oh, we'll do Man of La Mancha. So they got it all together again and off they went. But it was, it was wonderful. And it was a great experience to work on. Uh, and that's, I'd say, be one of my most favourite favorite pieces of all time. Have we seen it much that there's been a... I know it happened with My Fair Lady. There was a touring production around Australia when it was playing either Melbourne or Sydney. Am I correct in that? You mean the original? Yeah, the original. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it, it opened that... in Melbourne, right? Yeah. And then they formed another company to play here in Sydney. And I think uh, Robin Bailey and Bunty came out of the Melbourne production into the Sydney production, and the Melbourne production got whoever they replaced... In the principal cast and and, uh, and that's extraordinary. You'd never see that nowadays. No, no. no. But did, did that has that that happened much in our history? That there's been a, a couple of companies. I honestly can't remember. There may have been, but I would have thought My Fair Lady would have been one of the few in my living memory that has actually been able to achieve that. Um, and of course, then you know they toured Australia and did New Zealand and 
And then eventually I think that all well, the sets certainly went off, one of the sets went off to South Africa. And they were doing it over there, you know. But uh, yes, that was a remarkable period, a remarkable achievement. So good, unbelievable when I think of it. And I saw it, oh, what are they doing there? <laughs> and it was, of course, lovely to see it a couple of years ago in the Julie Andrews oh, yes, staging. I thought, I thought that was beautifully done. It's no. a glorious show. That's a show I'd go to a sing-along. Yes. Would you go to a sing-along of My Fair Lady? Probably. It's slower. <laughs> <laughs> Robbo, thank you so much for um, for this conversation, this chat. Um, our, our listeners on stages are certainly going to uh, be enthralled with your extensive career and um, you've contributed so much to showbiz in Australia and um, thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. Did you enjoy the a, talk? It's been a privilege. <laughs> it's been a joy. Yes, rambling on. <laughs> let's, have a, let's have a coffee. Yes. Okay. You're listening to Season 2 of The Stages Podcast. All episodes from this season and last are now available through iTunes, Wooshka and Spotify. Hear inspiring conversations with a range of folk who engage audiences actors, directors, designers, playwrights, producers and drag queens. Everyone has a fascinating story and you'll hear them here on Stages. I'm Peter Ayers and thanks for listening. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. See you next time on Stages. Stages.